Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Lindsay Zients. And I'm Catherine Awasti. Former State Corrections Chief Walt McNeil is working with Vice President Joe Biden on the White House plan to curb gun violence. McNeil, now the police chief in Quincy, Florida, went to Washington after last month's tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary School. He represents the International Association of Chiefs of Police, of which he's immediate past president. McNeil told a Democrat club in Tallahassee yesterday that he plans a ban on assault weapons and background checks for all weapons. I believe that the vast majority of Floridians, the vast majority of uh, Americans, believe that we should control assault weapons and that uh, they just have to make their their congresspersons and their legislators uh, know that that's their wish. McNeil also said a big part of curbing gun violence will be limiting access to weapons for people with mental health problems. Florida school districts plan to press state lawmakers this year for more money for security. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Forrest Smith reports some of the top education officials in the state think the public will be willing to pay more for security in the wake of the shooting tragedy last month at an elementary school in Newton, Connecticut. Florida School Board Association Executive Director Wayne Blanton says the shooting that killed 20 first graders and six staff members has left a lasting impression on elementary schools in the Sunshine State. We are looking at more officers on campus. Uh, many of our districts have already put uh, uniformed police officers at elementary schools, and we will be working with the legislature and law enforcement to attempt to get more dollars in our safe school money. Uh, last year, safe schools was about $68, $70 million. We're going to be asking for more money in that particular line item uh, to support the safety efforts out there in our public schools. Blanton says it's not going to be cheap. He's estimating that amount of money needs to be increased to about $100 million, and it's going to be used to pay for many more school safety programs. Well, most of that school safety money now goes for uniform resource school resource officers. School resource officers are in most high schools in Florida and many middle schools in Florida. We did not have school resource officers prior to this tragedy uh, in elementary schools. Now many of our districts for the rest of this year have uh, uniformed police officers in our elementary schools. So most of the money does go directly for uniformed police officers at our schools. Blanton says he wants to approach the legislature with specific needs that the additional money would address. To that end, each county is trying to identify improvements they would like to see. We're going to be asking for dollars, and we're uh, working with school districts right now on improved crisis training. We're looking at how schools are constructed and looking at some other safety features. Uh, some of the teachers have told us they cannot lock their doors from the inside. Uh, maybe that's something we need to look at. Maybe we need a different type of glass. Maybe we need panic buttons in uh, classrooms. There are a lot of things that we can do right now that cost very little uh, to help our safety measures out there in our public schools. Blanton says, yes, it's going to cost millions of dollars, but the safety of children and instructors in the public schools is of paramount importance. Some counties, like Marion County, are discussing going to local voters with special tax requests for security. But Blanton indicates that may be premature. There are three or four districts that are proposing that right now. Uh, I would rather let's wait on that and work with the legislature and see if we can come up with the additional dollars it's going to take. And I will tell you, it's going to be expensive. It will be in excess of $100 million. But he says that's a small price to pay to ensure safety. And on the idea of arming classroom teachers, Blanton says bad idea for many reasons. Uh, we will not support teachers having guns in 
in a school, uh, it's, a, it's a bad precedent. Uh, it's not the right thing to do. We will support uniformed police officers, but uh, teachers serve as role models. And one of our concerns is if the role model is walking around with a weapon, what is to say that impressionable young people will not say, well, I can do it too? And whether it be at school or out in the community, and we're not going to support that. We will support uh, money for uniformed police officers, but we will not be supporting uh, teachers having the ability to carry weapons on campus. Right now, the state budget includes about $17 billion for K-12 through education. So Blanton says the increased security money in that amount really isn't all that much. And he's optimistic lawmakers will have the political will to direct more funding to school security following the December shootings. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Forrest Smith. Rick Scott has reached the halfway point in his four-year term as Florida's governor. Scott was very specific about what he promised to do in office, so PolitiFact Florida has chosen this two-year mark to check up on how the governor's doing on those promises. PolitiFact's Angie Holen talks about the new governor and how the new governor is doing on his promises with Craig Kopp from member station WUSF. Angie, as you point out, there's probably no promise by Governor Scott bigger or more contentious than his promise to create 700,000 jobs in seven years in the state. Pretty quickly, there was disagreement over whether that's on top of normal job growth or just 700,000 jobs, period. Let's, re- let's remember what normal growth is. There was no normal growth in that office. What I said is I ran uh, some very specific campaigns, seven steps to 700,000 jobs. Angie, what's PolitiFact Florida's ruling on Governor Scott's job creation promise? We've rated this promise stalled, and we are rating it on whether he's creating those 700,000 jobs above and over natural job growth. Um, But the bigger picture here is that jobs are growing in Florida, but they're just not growing quickly enough to meet his, his benchmark. You know, you can slice and dice the numbers a number of ways, but right now it just looks like the growth is kind of sluggish, and, and he's not going to meet that mark. But It's early. It's only the halfway mark, so we'll see what happens. Kind of interesting, the whole idea about whether it's on top of normal growth or 700,000 just jobs created. I kind of wonder why reporters didn't ask that question when he made the promise. Well, during the campaign, he was pretty specific, saying it was above normal job growth. So the economist uh, projected normal job growth of about one million jobs. So this would be on top of that. And he said during the campaign that his policies of of cutting taxes and making regulations business friendly would cause these jobs to grow. Now, you know, employment is a very complicated picture. Whether governors have enough impact to affect state job growth is another open question. And I think we just need to see some more time go by and the Florida recovery grow more to see how this is going to end up. But right now it seems stalled. Angie PolitiFact Florida says the governor has kept 18 out of 57 promises he made when elected. What is top among the things uh, promises that he kept? Well, he's kept a lot of promises that he has direct control of. Like he said he would not take a salary. He said he would sell the state plane. Those are both promise kept. He's also kept promises where he has the support of the state legislature. So he's eliminated tenure for new teachers, it would be one example. So in those areas where he could act on his own or he got the legislature to go along, he's kept those promises. And PolitiFact Florida says Governor Scott has five promises that were flat out broken. Angie, what are those? 
Well, one of the most notable would be his promise to bring Arizona's immigration law to Florida. This was a strict immigration law where uh, local law enforcement would be more involved in enforcing immigration laws. And that just seems to have fallen by the wayside. And that's rated promise broken. Sometimes I wonder if politicians, when they make promises, are really saying this is what I hope to get done. Or are we when a politician says I will get it done, we're taking that as a promise. Yeah, we have a number of promise meters at PolitiFact. We do take their campaign promises seriously. Uh, We have a, a pretty unique database where we monitor them. And we're doing this for the voters so the voters can see where did the campaign rhetoric fall short of reality. And the other thing that we do is that we rate outcomes. We do not rate intentions. So if they tried hard, that doesn't count with us. They only get a promise kept if they actually were able to put their promise into action. Angie Holen of PolitiFact, Florida, thanks for updating us on the Scottometer halfway through the governor's term. Thanks. Thanks. And Governor Scott is getting some flack for using what some are saying is an inflated estimate when talking about the expected state cost of expanding Medicaid under the Federal Affordable Health Care Act. Florida Public Radio's Reagan McCarthy has more. The Florida Center for Fiscal and Economic Policy has released a report with several estimates for the cost Florida faces under the Medicaid expansion. Prices range from the group's own estimate at $270 million per year to the number the governor's been using, an estimate from the state's agency for health care administration of more than $2 billion per year for the next 10 years. The Center for Fiscal and Economic Policy's director, Karen Woodall, says the difference in cost comes from a difference in the assumptions in each group's calculations. You would have to question what's driving that assumption. Meanwhile, the news organization Health News Florida says it's uncovered an email chain showing Scott's office has been warned by budget analysts their numbers might not be accurate, but the governor's kept using them anyway. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Regan McCarthy. With social media on the rise, many farmers are turning to Facebook or Twitter to keep up with the economy. According to the American Farm Bureau Federation, 98% of farmers have Internet access and 76% use social media. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Dana Lewin reports on how farmers are using social media to engage in the outside world. Almost everyone has Facebook. It is used to chat with friends, connect with loved ones, meet new people, and network. But Facebook and other social media sites have become more than something we use to entertain ourselves. Businesses and organizations are using social media, and now farmers. Social media provides opportunities for farmers to connect with the community and have supporters, stimulate the local economy, and inform people about the benefits of buying locally. Here in Gainesville, there are many farmers using social media as a way to get volunteers to help out. Travis Mitchell of Florida Organic Growers says their new project at Porter's Community Farm benefits everyone in the community. And if it wasn't for social media, they wouldn't have the land that they need. We did an online fundraising campaign for this. So I made an Indiegogo campaign and video um, and then used mostly social media to promote it. And um, the idea is it's a, it was basically sort of an abandoned lot and the owner of it um, was open to you know projects being done with it, something we could take care of it. So he, he's leasing it to us for free, and um, we did we ran this campaign to start this farm with the idea being 
uh, beautification neighbor, and mainly we'll be working with the St. Francis House and other, you know, different food banks or soup kitchens and donating most of the produce to them. Porter's Community Farm has a lot of needs to stay in business. Mitchell says social media helps paint a picture of the farm so they can share images and attract people that are willing to donate since they are a not-for-profit organization. So we use it a lot to connect with volunteers, uh, let people know the work we're doing. Um, so I took some pictures today, and as soon as I get back to the office, I'll, I'll upload them out there. And it's just a great way, to a fr- free way to publicize the work you're doing and connect with people. Often farmers use social media to connect with other farmers to share ideas and resources. Sometimes they use social media to connect with local supermarkets to sell their goods and resources. Citizens Co-op in Gainesville is a community-owned market that sells local produce from farms in North Central Florida. Julie Matheny works at Citizens Co-op and says their market gives the community an inside look through social media. You know, we'll post pictures of farmers coming in with, you know, their fresh arugula or whatever it is. And um, it's nice for people to have, like, an inside look into the store to see what's going on. Citizens Co-op works with over 160 local producers that supply a variety of good, from vegetables to milk to jam and hot sauce. Matheny says they also inform customers about the farming world and some of its negatives. Um, Anytime there's, like, some farm bill action, we always let our membership know through Facebook and newsletters and things. Um, Sometimes uh, we'll find, you know, an article on this company and why we don't carry that product. You know, we'll share that with our Facebook as well. Many old school farmers are not tech savvy when it comes to using the internet. The Ag Chat Foundation is designed to educate farmers how to use Facebook, Twitter, blogs, or any other form of social media, and it teaches them how to use these tools efficiently. Ag Chat also helps farmers tell their story so they can connect with people outside of agriculture. Farmers serve as teachers of the business, and with social media, they are able to reach out to the community and share their voice of growing food. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Dana Lewin in Gainesville. Some of us may not think about where our food comes from or how it's produced, but as WUFTFM's Ryan Locker reports, others in the Gainesville area are concerned, and there's a lot to think about when you try to grow your own food. Tending the soil is just the beginning of a farmer's job in the field. The way crops are grown and managed depends on the particular type of agriculture. For Marty Mesh, his early efforts with conventional agriculture changed his entire outlook on farming. I realized I put poison on every single apple in the whole apple orchard, and I said, I'll never farm this way again. There's got to be a better way for the sake of the environment, for the sake of the person who's growing the food, and for the people eating the food. And in this case, it's the same guy, and and there's got to be a better way. Mesh is the executive director of Florida Organic Growers in Gainesville and was listed by the Natural Foods Merchandiser magazine as one of the 25 most influential people in the organic industry. Growing organic since 1972, Mesh says the overall rewards of the trade outweigh the downfalls. If we really had to pay the true cost of the, of the chemical inputs, the true cost of polluting the environment, the polluter pays principle, if we had to bear the cost of some of our production decisions and and repercussions, then organic farming would look like a bargain. According to the USDA, organic foods are produced without using most conventional pesticides, synthetic fertilizers, or sewage sludge, and they are processed without using ionizing radiation. 
Mesh says even though the chemical companies and studies can't directly prove that pesticides cause cancer, he says it's an unspoken reality. Farmers know. Farm families know. Widows know. Kids that have lost their fathers know that my dad was out there spraying every day, every week, and I don't have my dad anymore. It becomes really clear. The Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences shows that with the increasing population in Florida, organic farming could help ease the environmental pressure on the ecosystems by promoting natural food production. IFAS Extension Specialist in Nutrition and Health, Linda Bobroff, says the benefits shown are encouraging. I do think that organic farming is a sustainable way of uh, producing food. So sustain, you know, looking at sustainability and um, some of the practices that, that are done on organic farms is uh, very positive for the environment. Part of Mesh's job as executive director is to help provide sustainable, nutritious solutions to the issues facing farmers, families, and everyone in between. However, Bobrov says not to choose organic for the nutritional value. I think that the impact on health is minimal in terms of nutritional health um, because some of the studies that I looked at where there were in slight increases in vitamin C or slight increases in beta-carotene, they were so small. Regardless of the stringent criteria and guidelines of growing organic, Mesh says the immediate reinforcement of growing good, healthy food and the consumer's initial reaction makes all the difference. For now, he will continue to do what he has done best for the past 40 years, which is preserve the land and maintain an environmentally responsible form of agriculture. For Florida's 89.1 WFTFM, I'm Ryan Lacker. Proposed plans for roadways through Stark and Bradford County will be addressed at a public hearing by the Florida Department of Transportation. FDOT is proposing to build a new four-lane highway on the west side of Stark in order to decrease the flow of traffic. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Forrest Smith spoke with project manager Stephen Browning for more information about this $2 million project. This is the Project Development Environment Study for US 301 State Road 200 from County Road 227 to County Road 233. And it's basically to relieve the downtown Stark area for traffic. Okay, and tell us where, where this would be. Uh, we hear the term bypass and that kind of thing kicked around. Give us a little bit better idea about how, how this project would uh, go around Stark to take the load off 301 through Stark right now. It would actually begin, I guess, north of town around County Road 233 and would continue west of Stark, limited access, overpassing 16 our State Road 16, State Road 100, and tie back in around County Road 227, just south of the, the new Walmart, Super Walmart. It would be the main, the main bypass, or the main route, I guess, around Stark. Four-lane road we're talking about? Yes, correct. It would be a four-lane roadway. Without all the traffic lights? There would be a, a light at the beginning and end, end of the project, and that would be it. And that's one of the problems, is it not, with having 301 go through Stark, all the traffic lights, so traffic backs up, the big trucks use that as a through route, um, all those type of things. Yes, definitely. There's several traffic signals, you know, a high demand for trucks, trucks stop and start, you know, definitely slows down the traffic. And this is a major project. I don't remember a, a road project this big in North Florida in, in years and years. What are some of the things involved in planning of a project like this? I mean, especially the PD&E study, it looks, with the project development environment study, it looks at the environmental aspects, physical, natural, 
and just takes those into account and also identifies with the stakeholders of what they want. Yeah, the property owners, local governments, any, anyone interested in the project. We, that's what the purpose of these public meetings and public hearings, to go out and see what they want, see what they envision for their town and everything. And uh, a project like this, one of the, I guess one of the big, uh, big aspects and, and cost factors is just acquiring the right-of-way. Right. The right-of-way is actually about $46 million of the $202 million project. So, yeah, it's, I guess it's about 25% of the project cost. And, and, and when we, you know, we're, we're talking about this kind of project and it's not something that's going to happen overnight, can you, can you walk us through the, the, the time frame of, uh, you know, getting from where we are now to having a car drive on a new road like that? Well, unfortunately, the construction's not yet funded. But generally, once we get the right-of-way acquired, which we're going to start later this year, in 2013, the construction would follow that at some point, but it's not identified in our five-year work program. But once we wrap up the PD&E study, which we're working on now, I mean, design's ongoing with that. We've started design a little bit ahead of, I guess, completing the PD&E study. Once we finish that, definitely we'll start purchasing the right-of-way and then hopefully get construction dollars at some point. And you say PDE study? What, what is that? Sorry, the Project Development and Environment Study. Okay, so you've got to go through all the environmental story, uh, studies, probably wetlands and, and that type thing as well, I see. Um, and that, that by itself is a time-consuming process. So w- what kind of time frame do you see? I, I've, I know you can't give us an exact year or anything, but is this a, a, a process that takes three or four years to do these studies and get the right away, or are we looking at five to ten? Ballpark it for us. Usually design's a two-year process, but it's underway now, so we should have enough design done later this year to start buying the right-of-way, and that's generally a two-year process. And then the construction usually takes around two years once it's funded. Then uh, if you can, just uh, give us the particulars of the meeting tonight, the, the, the when, where, and that type of thing. Well, it's going to be the Bradford County Fairgrounds beginning at 4.30 to 6.30. We're going to have an open house with displays showing the rural alternative which is also the preferred alternative. And then at 6.30, we're going to have a formal presentation followed by a public comment period. And then after this meeting is over, your group goes back to working on the, uh, on the project uh, and the environmental studies and looking at the right-of-way. You kind of just are, are stopping to do this to update everybody. Then you get back to work on what you're doing right now, correct? Correct, yes. We will finalize the project development and environment study and continue the design, finish that up, and prepare to buy the right-of-way later this year. That was Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Forrest Smith talking with FDOT project manager Stephen Browning. For a detailed map of the proposed changes in traffic information, go to www.us301stark.com. Kelly Benham and Tom French faced one of the most difficult decisions any parent would ever have to make, whether to allow their daughter to die or fight for her survival. In 2010, their daughter was born 17 weeks early. Half the babies born this early do not survive. Many, many do face developmental disabilities. In the first part of a two-part series, the Benhams share their experience. When things started to go wrong, I was actually only about halfway through. I was 20 weeks, and up to that point, everything had been textbook perfect. We had had our 20-week ultrasound where they sort of check all the baby's anatomy and look for any problems and sailed through that with no problems. That was a Friday, and then on Sunday, everything just went totally wrong. I just started bleeding, and then 
we were in the hospital and I was cramping and in labor and the doctor came in and he just looked scared to death. His fear was that he would have to take the baby out to save my life. When you bleed like that at that stage of pregnancy, you can, you can bleed to death. Tom and I really thought the baby was already gone until the ultrasound tech pulled up a heartbeat on the monitor. And then what was your reaction once you heard that? I was, like, just frozen because, you know, her her heart was thumping along in that room, and, and she was not in distress. She was completely, she seemed oblivious, you know, to all the drama. It was a relief that she was there, but it also seemed in a way more cruel because I thought we were going to lose her and we were going to have to watch it happen. So even though she was oblivious, you weren't oblivious to all the difficulties you could face. The doctors were pretty frank with you. This is an unusual situation. These things don't always work out well. Tell yeah. me about that. It was, it was way too early. It was way too early in the pregnancy for her to be born um, and be okay. And they told us that, you know, babies born that early face an array of problems. Every part of their body is immature, so the doctors can't say where the problem might be. It could be in the brain. It could be in the lungs. It could be um, the immune system is a problem. Infection is a huge problem. The digestive system is a huge problem. Um, Infection can take a baby down in a second, and they're so small, and they have so many holes poked in them for IVs and other kinds of tubes. that Tests. Every one of those is a little um, opening for bacteria that could kill them. How small was your daughter? She was born at one pound, four ounces. She was the length of a Barbie doll. I bought ketchup at Publix. It was a 20-ounce bottle, and I was staring at it. That's that's how big my baby was. The odds we were given were she had an 80% chance of death or at least a moderate disability. We didn't know if that disability would mean a ventilator or asthma, you know, blindness or eyeglasses. There's no way they could tell us. The doctor said that we should decide before she was born if we wanted them to try to resuscitate her or if we wanted to just hold her till she died. So at what point do you think it was that you actually made that decision that we want to do everything we can to save our baby? It was a decision we kind of fell into, I think. We couldn't make that decision. We just didn't want to have doctors go to these extraordinary measures if it was going to mean a lifetime of suffering for her. That's what we didn't want. We just, we wanted her to have a chance. We wanted her to take her home. And then another nurse practitioner came and visited us and said, you know, you don't have to decide right now. You can let the baby be born. Some come out kicking and strong and fighting and some come out blue and limp. And in the, in the first few days, a lot of, a lot will be revealed and you can decide to take her off of life support if that's if it's not going well. And so that's what we did. Three years ago, an earthquake in Haiti sent a concrete wall crashing down onto dancer Fabian John. Her right leg was crushed and had to be amputated. On January 27th, Fabian will take the stage at Haiti's National Theater on a prosthetic leg. For the past year, reporter Jacob Kushner from member station WLRN has been following Fabian's struggle to rebuild her life. In a part one of this series, he found out that the woman who will dance again is anything but recovered. Fabian Jean grew up watching dance rehearsals at a studio across the street from her school in Port-au-Prince. 
She joined that studio at 19 and went on to perform with Haiti's biggest bands and at the National Theater. That all changed on January 12, 2010. I was watching TV. I felt the house start to shake. I ran outside. I stopped by a wall in front of the house. When the ground continued to shake, I ran. I fell to the ground. I took a towel and I put my leg in it. A concrete wall crushed her right leg. Neighbors took her to an overcrowded hospital. She waited in a parking lot for three days before a team of American doctors could finally get to her. And then they told her they'd have to amputate her leg below the knee. In a land that has always been geographically hostile for people with disabilities. She is going to need an amputation. Overnight, Haiti became a country of amputees. A U.S. TV station heard about the dancer who had lost her leg. And Fabian's story began making its way into America's living rooms. Fabian's days seem to have lost their purpose. Now she sits on this desolate street corner in Port-au-Prince. And I was, like everyone else, glued to the TV. I'd stay up till 2 in the morning watching the reports. And I, this report came on in the morning talking about this dancer who had lost her limb. Dennis Acton was watching from his home in Boston. He's a specialist in fitting prosthetic limbs, and he realized he could help some of Haiti's amputee victims. So he flew down to Haiti with a team of volunteer technicians to figure out how many amputees needed help. They arrived at a clinic near Port-au-Prince. Well, we walked into the building at dusk. It was a rather squalid setup. The, there was probably a dozen amputees in each room, um, all s- sleeping on the floor, on, on mattresses. Dennis spotted a woman who was missing her right leg. It was Fabian. And we kind of sensed she had some inner drive to her. She seemed like a strong woman who, who was ready to work to, to get over this situation. But she was very... She was very much resigned to the fact that her life was over when we started talking. He assured her it was not. I promised Fabienne that we would help her walk and to dance again. At first, when people told me I would dance again, I didn't believe them. But it was when I saw the videos of handicapped people dancing on one leg or with a prosthesis, I said, I will dance. Dennis fitted Fabian with a prosthetic limb. It strapped onto the stump under her kneecap. He set up a nonprofit foundation. It raised $41,000 to fund his team's work with Fabian and other Haitian amputees. I didn't want to go down there and just say, here's your leg, have a nice life. I wanted to go down there and, and fit them with the prosthesis, help them readjust to it, help them find new job skills if need be, and help them transition into their new lives. Compared to many earthquake victims who lost not only their legs but their lives, Fabian considered herself lucky. She had found an American benefactor who gave her a new leg and promised to help her learn to use it. When people think about reconstructing Haiti, they talk about billions of dollars in aid, building homes, and creating jobs. But both Fabian and Dennis would learn that in post-earthquake Haiti, stitching back together the life of just one woman could seem as complex as rebuilding Haiti itself. I'm Jacob Kushner. The Florida Department of Transportation will break ground tomorrow on a six-mile walking and biking trail that will run from Gainesville to Archer. WUFTFM's Shane Chernoff has that story. Construction will begin Thursday for a Florida Department of Transportation walking and biking trail stretching from Gainesville to Archer. The state-funded trail will cost just over $1 million, including the cost of designs. Project spokeswoman Lori Windham talked about the steps involved in completing the six-mile trail. Uh, the first step is to put construction signs up. Um, folks should start seeing the signs go up tomorrow and Friday. Work should begin on Monday. 
with actually removing some of the underbrush at the archer end of the trail. Um, the project is scheduled to be finished by the spring. Um, should not should not be impacted too much by wet weather, but they have to extend it a little bit. The parking area for the trail will be built close to Archer's water tower at the western end of the trail. The lot will have five parking spaces, which Wyndham said should be more than enough. That's pretty standard on a trail. The number of parking spaces really is determined by the location of the trail. And keep in mind that there's the, the trail is used by different people at different times, usually not a whole lot at the same exact time. It is a, a type of facility that people come at all different times, um, all different days as well as some people will just work um, into the trail from other areas, uh, walking or biking from other areas. It's a 10-foot wide trail with a 1-foot unpaved shoulder. The width makes it unsuitable for anything more than biking, walking, rollerblading, or skateboarding. Wyndham also said there are areas where car traffic will cross it, but no motorized vehicles are allowed on the trail. The, uh, the folks that live in the area along the trail, uh, at the side streets and driveways, uh, just no motorized vehicles um, driving on the trail. While lane closures during construction are possible, they will only occur after 8 a.m. on weekdays, and the construction is expected to be completed around March or April. For Flores 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Shane Chernoff. When does learning begin? The answer we know now is before we're born, in the womb, or for birds, that's in the egg. Recently, reporter Patricia Sagustome trace the lives of some special birds from the laboratory to local farmland. They're baby quails that were once so prevalent in South Florida. It turns out that these birds are helping scientists unravel clues that are helping premature babies survive. For more than two decades, Debbie Brunson has called the Redland Farming District her home. I have to keep this here because one of the little horses jumps out. It's an area just 20 miles southwest of Miami, known for its tropical fruits, orchids, and large-scale winter fruit harvests. She says the days when bobcats and hawks hunted prey like quail are long gone. Down here in Florida, there used to be quail everywhere. But because of farming and pesticides and building, they've disappeared. The Brunsons never farmed for a living, but did own a gun range where they let the foliage grow wild. They had a little camper and often spent the night in the woods. One day, Debbie heard something that changed her life. Just woke up one morning and I heard a bobwhite quail. I go, whoa, that's like really cool. You don't hear that very often. And I looked outside and he was standing up on this mound of dirt right on top of it. It's a little tiny quail. He was calling away. So I said to myself, that'd be kind of cool to bring back the quail. But how would she do it? It sounds like bobwhite. Let me try to reproduce the sound. She researched it and found out buying eggs or full-grown quails, these options were too expensive. She thought she had to give up the idea. Then about six months later, a flyer at a feed store caught her eye. A university research study needed someone to adopt baby quail chicks. That's perfect. That's perfect. So that's what I did. And I called them up and, and I started getting these quail. Okay, guys. It turns out Bronson's adopted chicks were being carefully watched while still developing in the egg. Robert Licklider is a developmental psychologist at Florida International University. He works with quail embryos up until a week after they hatch. At birth, they pretty much look like little adults. So they can see, they can hear, they can walk, they can vocalize. Uh, and that turns out to be really important for the work we do because we're interested in the effects of prenatal experience on postnatal development. In the lab, the quail eggs are exposed to intermittent patterns of light through their translucent shell. 
The embryos also hear sounds that mimic a mother quail's chirp. Licklider says they didn't expect that adding light or sounds would affect the bird's other sensory systems. So, for example, if we give them unusually early visual experience, we found that they're less likely to be good at learning a particular female's vocalization. And instead what they're doing is showing increased visual discrimination abilities, but at the cost of another sensory system. After decades of research, his team and other labs across the country have made a difference in neonatal units. Now preemie babies are not bombarded with bright lights around the clock or loud machine noises near their cribs. They put covers, for example, on the incubators or put eye patches on the newborns or uh, instigated what we call kangaroo care where the mother or father can actually hold and move around and touch uh, that high-risk preterm infant. Licklider says a collaborative project with the Harvard Medical School will use incubators equipped with special mattresses. Preemie babies will hear the sound of their mother's heartbeat and feel a vibration that mimics their mother's womb. But in the meantime, Debbie Brunson will continue adopting dozens of quail chicks every week, like she's done for the past seven years. Licklider says it was important to have homes for these birds, since the research is about nurturing infants after they're born. I'm Patricia Sagastuma in Miami. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Catherine Wasty. And I'm Lindsay Zion.